Good morning, church. Today's uh, scripture reading will be Acts 28, 11 to 31. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, in a ship of Alexandria, with twin Scots as a figurehead. Putting in the Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rhegium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome, and the brothers there, then they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have, not, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the laws of Moses and from prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would hear them, I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thanks, Linda. Good morning, everyone. 
If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at the Bridge Church. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, This year, as we've already mentioned, we've been going through the story of the Bible as a church. And as we've gone through the story of the Bible, if you've been reading with us, one of the things you may have realized is that the different parts of the Bible are all different genres of writing. So some of the Bible is poetry or songs. Some of it is letters that were written by one person to another person. Some is prophecy, and some of it is history. And the book of Acts, which we're looking at today, it's one of the historical books of the Bible. It tells us about historical events that happened in our world. And the book of Acts is really significant because it doesn't just tell us about historical events, but it's the only historical book in the Bible that's written about events that happened after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again on the earth. It's the last book chronologically in terms of the events that it narrates for history, which means as we look at the end of the book of Acts today, we're actually looking at the last historical event to happen that's included for us in the Bible's historical books. We have some letters that are written after this. We have some prophecy that comes after this. But in terms of historical events, this is the last event in the story of the Bible. And so if you are listening closely to the scripture reading today, you may have realized that it's a weird place to end the story. Because the book of Acts has been talking about how Christianity is spreading all throughout the world. More and more people are hearing about Jesus and more and more people are trusting in him. The gospel, it's spreading farther and farther beyond the borders of Israel where it first started. And now Paul, he's been all over the world, had super successful ministry, but he's in prison and he's been in prison for four years. He's on the verge of getting to stand on trial before Caesar, having the chance to to share the gospel with the ruler of the Roman Empire, which seems like a ministry highlight for his entire life. And the story stops before we get there. And like as if that wasn't enough of a, a cliffhanger, weird ending, right before the end of the book of Acts, Paul has this group of prominent Jewish leaders in Rome come to him. He shares the gospel with them and they're basically like, yeah, not interested. And they leave. Like, is it just me or does that just seem like a discouraging and anticlimactic place to leave off the story? So why does the story end right here? That's the question we're gonna look at today. And what we're gonna see is there's more going on in the story, that God's kingdom advances even when we can't see how. God's kingdom advances even when we can't see how. We're gonna look at a new perspective on success, a new perspective on hope, and then how to get these new perspectives. First, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us that you work in history, that you reveal your will to us through the things that you do. And I pray that you would be speaking to us today, helping us to see through your word how you are at work in not just the world 2,000 years ago, but the world today, and how we can be a part of that. Teach us to love you more and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, this new perspective on success. Now, Paul is in captivity throughout today's uh, passage. He's on his way to stand in Rome on trial before Caesar. And one thing that's important for us to remember about Paul as we look at this passage is that he is a pastor. He is a missionary. 
And I want you to just think with me, in our world, how do we determine whether pastors and missionaries are successful? I think for most people, it comes down to numbers. How many people are showing up on a Sunday morning? How much money is in the offering plate each week? How many people are being converted through your ministry? Even if we're not talking about pastors and missionaries, like outside the church, just in the world in general, numbers are one of the main criteria for determining success in life, whether it's how much revenue you're getting, whether it's how many followers you have on social media or how many subscribers you have or whatever else, numbers are king in our world. So much of our world's definition of success in all areas of life, it's just around numbers and immediately measurable results. And when our definition of success hinges on numbers and immediately measurable results, it becomes really easy to justify cutting corners in order to increase our numbers. So think about this. Paul originally gets locked up several chapters earlier in Jerusalem because the Jewish people believe that he's breaking Jewish laws and they have him arrested. And before he's even sent to Rome, he's held in a prison near Israel for two years under this Roman governor named Felix. And it's pretty clear from Acts chapter 24, verse 26, that if Paul had been willing to pay a bribe to Felix, Felix would have let Paul out of the prison. Paul would have been a free man. Now, should Paul have paid this bribe to Felix to get his freedom? I mean, think about it. If he just pays this bribe, he can go out, be a free man, continue sharing the gospel with thousands and thousands of people all over the world. Think about the ministry impact that could have. He wouldn't have to do anything to deny Jesus or deny his faith. Just give this guy a little bit of money. Think about all the ministry opportunities that Paul missed out on by sticking to his principles and not bribing his way out of prison. Sounds like a failure, right? Like he he just missed out on so much opportunity because he just had to do the right thing. If numbers are the most impactful thing in determining the success of his ministry or our success in life in general, the decision whether or not to pay a bribe to get out of prison in that decision, it's a no brainer. You pay the money, you get out, you keep spreading the gospel. It's, he sat in prison there for two years. He traveled to Rome, which took like six months. And then he sat in prison in Rome for two years. That's like, four and a half years at least of freedom where Paul could be out spreading the gospel, doing amazing work. And instead he's just sitting in prison, but Paul doesn't pay the bribe. Paul doesn't take the easy path to freedom. Why? Because Paul has a different standard of success that he lives by than our world does. Paul realizes numbers and measurable results aren't the ultimate standard that God's going to hold him accountable for on judgment day. He sees success differently, and that leads him to live differently. There's this author named Peter Scazzaro. He gives a definition of success that I think Paul would have lived by. He says, success is doing what God has asked us to do, doing it his way and in his timing. It's doing what God has asked us to do, doing it his way and in his timing. You know, if you rewind back to Acts chapter 21, Paul, he's still free. He's just strongly convinced that God wants him to go to Jerusalem. He's been traveling the world, having all this fruitful ministry away from Israel. He, he knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's probably going to be arrested, quite likely going to be killed. 
And as if he didn't know that enough himself, as he moves back towards Jerusalem, everywhere he stops, the people warn him, if you go to Jerusalem, they will tie you up and arrest you and give you over to the Romans, which you only give people over to the Romans if you want them dead. Because the one thing the Romans could do in their legal system that the Jewish people were not allowed to do is execute people. And so they're warning Paul, if you go back, you will die. And yet Paul, he's absolutely convinced that that this is what God's calling him to do, even though it means prison, even though it may mean death. And because he knows God wants him to go to Jerusalem, he's committed to doing what God has called him to do, even though everyone warns him that it will end badly. And of course he gets there. He does get arrested. He does get handed over to the Romans. But once he's in prison, what does he do? He stays there to see this legal process through because he's convinced that he is right where God wants him to be. And so he's going to keep doing what God has asked him to do, keep doing it his way and keep waiting on his timing. But how is he able to do that? I mean, could you do that? How can he keep going down this path where he's certain that it's going to end in imprisonment, quite likely death? And then once he's taken that path, how can he keep just sitting in prison for four plus years? If you felt like God was calling you to do something that you knew would end in imprisonment, quite likely would end in death, would you have the strength and conviction to carry through with it? Are you so strongly convinced that God's way is best, that you're willing to sacrifice results, sacrifice your ability to feel good about what you've accomplished in order to do what God wants you to do? Or that you're willing to sacrifice your own safety and well-being in that process? I mean, if I'm being honest, a lot of the time, the answer for me is no. That's, that's hard. It's challenging. I mean, what would our lives even look like if we were to live this way? I realize Paul's situation may seem a bit big, a bit grand, a bit out there and disconnected from our lives. Because I mean, we live in a place where Christianity is still legal. So unless the laws change, or unless you feel God calling you to go somewhere where Christianity is not legal, this fear of being arrested for our faith and put on trial for our lives because of trusting in Jesus and following him in Hong Kong can feel a bit far out there. But what if the sacrifices God calls us to make aren't quite that extreme? What if it stops short of imprisonment? What if it doesn't require us to be locked up, to be in physical danger, but it just costs us success in the world's eyes? What if the sacrifice God calls us to make is something a little bit more like what Robertson McQuilkin went through? Now I know what you're thinking. Who is Robertson McQuilkin? It's a weird name and I've never heard of this guy before. Well, here's who Robertson McQuilkin is. He used to be the president of a school called Columbia Bible College and Seminary in the USA. I mean, think about the influence for God's kingdom you could have in a position like that. You're running a Bible college and seminary. You're training up future pastors and missionaries and ministry leaders. You could impact through all of them. You could impact tens of thousands of people, if not more, through all of their ministries. And you have the chance to shape and influence so many people in this position. Well, in 1981, his wife Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, which basically causes your brain to deteriorate. Your memory gets worse and worse. And in 1990, he was eight years short of retirement age. His wife's Alzheimer's disease had developed to the stage where she was now terrified to be away from him. She, she was terrified to the extent that if she was at home and he wasn't there, she would just leave the house and start walking down the street looking for him. He realized this is a dangerous situation. 
And many of his friends recommended, just put her into a care home. They'll look after her. You can continue being successful and influential and, and impacting the world for Jesus. But that's not what he did. He actually quit his job so that he could stay home and care for his wife. And listen to what he said in his resignation letter to the university. He said, the decision to leave my job and care for her was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. I love Muriel. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. A lot of people questioned his decision. They said that he was making a mistake, doing the wrong thing, but, but he knew that this is what God was calling him to do. And so he did it. And it was a long, challenging sacrifice. He left his job in 1990. In 1995, his wife spoke her last words. In 1999, she had deteriorated to the place where she could no longer, her body no longer functioned. She just laid in bed all day long. And it wasn't until 2003, 13 years after he gave up his prominent ministry position, that she finally died and went home to be with Jesus. Like Paul in today's passage, Robertson McQuilkin's faithfulness to God essentially placed him under house arrest for years instead of allowing him to continue with this prominent ministry position. Does that sound successful to you? Does Paul sitting in prison for four years sound successful to you? And again, I realize for many of us, even a sacrifice like this may be more drastic than what God's calling us to do. But what if... What if he's just calling us to do something as simple as slow down our career advancement so we can be more supportive of our spouse and kids as we have young kids at home? Would you see that sacrifice as a step towards success? And that's the season I'm in and it is a struggle, right? Like I know that my children need my presence and extra help from me. I know that Justine needs extra help from me and I want to be there for them, but, and I love them, but every time I go to hang out with the boys. There's just this little voice. It's like, Eric, think of all the ministry opportunities you're missing out on to be with them right now. And I know it's important, but still there's just that little voice asking me, is this really successful? But what we see from Paul today is that sometimes success means moving in a direction that feels like failure. Sometimes true success means moving in a direction that feels like failure. You know, the interesting thing for Paul and for Robertson McQuilkin is that their faithfulness to God in obe obeying him actually opened up ministry opportunities they could never have dreamed of otherwise. Paul, he went to Jerusalem, even though, why am I, go why am I going? I'm going to get locked up. He sat in prison for four years, but all of that gave him the opportunity to share the gospel, gospel with Caesar. Caesar was the king of Rome, the most powerful man alive on earth at that time. There was no way Paul ever could have had a chance to talk with Caesar, except that God perfectly organized circumstances so Paul would have a chance to stand before Caesar and share with him about Jesus. And Paul never would have had that opportunity if he had just paid the bribe to get out of prison so he could keep being successful. Or Robertson McQuilkin, his story of what he did actually got turned into a book and hearing about what he did helped many couples who were stuck in difficult marriages to stick it out and recommit to their love for one another. He's influenced so many marriages through his decision to give up success, 
And that never would have happened if he had just stayed in his seminary position and put his wife in a care home. And it's not that we pursue obedience to God and faithfulness to him as a way of manipulating him into giving us the earthly success we really want. No, Paul was genuinely faithful to what God called him to, even though he thought it would end in death. Robertson McQuilkin quit his job thinking it meant the end of his public ministry career. They weren't doing these things to manipulate God into giving them other things they wanted. They were just being faithful to what God had called them to do in that moment. I love the way McQuilkin puts it. He says, the key for me has always been with whatever God has put me in or will ever put me in, how can that count the maximum for what he's up to in the world? All I had to know was God's assignment for me now. I love that line. All I had to know is God's assignment for me now. That's success. Faithfulness, it's not a magic key to manipulate God into being in our debt. It's the key to following Jesus and trusting him with the outcome. And when we're following Jesus, when we're doing what he asks us to do, doing it his way, doing it in his timing, that's success. And I realize staying faithful in this way, it's hard. We're gonna look in just a few minutes at how to get faithfulness like this. But before we do, we're gonna look at one other new perspective this passage introduces us to. And that's a new perspective on hope. If you think about God's kingdom and how it grows and spreads in the world, what are the things that you look to to determine whether things are going properly in that process? Whether God's kingdom is moving forward like it's supposed to be? How can we measure whether God's kingdom is advancing. Again, I think many people turn to numbers. Many people turn to things like the level of cultural influence and power that Christianity has in the world. I mean, that's behind so many of the culture wars that are happening in many countries across the world is that there are people who think if if Christianity can just influence society and bring Christian morals and values into widespread public practice, Jesus is winning. If we get the laws passed that ban people from doing all the things that God hates, then Jesus is winning. But if the anti-Christian agenda is the one getting the airtime, if they're the ones getting their politicians in place and having their laws passed, then Jesus is losing. Have you ever felt that way or talked with people who felt that way? But the ending of Acts actually rewrites this narrative for us as well. Because notice the book ends with Paul waiting to appear before Caesar. He's been in Rome for two years. There's actually no indication yet of when he's going to be able to go make his case before Caesar and share with Caesar about Jesus. If the success of Christianity or the failure of Christianity hinges on its influence in the world and on culture, then this meeting with Caesar is the high point of the entire book right? Like you can't end the book without knowing how that turns out because whether everything in the book has been worth it depends on how that meeting goes. And we don't actually know 100% why the book of Acts ends here. But if the meeting with Caesar is the highlight of the entire story, then you have to include at least a summary of it. Like even if it's possible that the story ends here because Luke was writing in real time and this is just the most recent thing that's happened. But even then, You just delay publication for a little while to find out what's going to happen in this meeting because it's so significant. Like if Caesar hears the gospel and he converts and he turns the whole empire to following Jesus, think of how huge and significant that would be for the kingdom of Jesus. But Luke cuts off the story before it gets to Caesar. Why? It's because the outcome of the meeting with Caesar doesn't change the message of the book of Acts at all. 
The outcome of the meeting with Caesar does not change the message of the book of Acts at all. And what does that mean for our lives? It means the success or failure of Christianity doesn't hinge on its cultural influence. You know why the meeting with Caesar actually in the grand scheme of things isn't that important? Because the whole message of the book of Acts is that Jesus is on the throne. Caesar thinks he's so powerful, but he has nothing on Jesus. And Jesus is the true king. And if Jesus is the true king, his kingdom's gonna go forward like it's supposed to, whether or not Caesar agrees that Jesus is king. Because Jesus has the power. Luke doesn't want us to see, oh yeah, Christianity comes in, takes over the powerful position, triumphs, sits in this place of strength, and then forces everyone else to do what it wants. No, it's the exact opposite. Look at the closing words of this book proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of God, it's going forth. But where's it going from? Not Caesar's palace, not the halls of power. No, it's coming from a prison cell. The amazing power of the word of God isn't that it lets you grab power and hold on to it and force everyone else to do this way of living so that the world can be a better place. No, the amazing power of the word of God is that it is so powerful that prison walls and chains cannot stop its progress. The amazing power of the word of God is that it grips our hearts and it makes us want to change the way we live, even though no one is forcing us to live that way. And if you look at what Jesus says about the kingdom, the way he talks about it, it actually makes perfect sense because what does he repeatedly call the kingdom of God? He compares it to a seed. And how do seeds work? They grow slowly. I mean, at the start, all of the growth is happening underground in places where you can't even see it. It's actually happening in places where it's so fragile that if you try and dig in there so you can see it, you're going to kill it and destroy all of the growth that's happening there. But as seeds take root and as they start to grow, their growth is powerful. If the roots get into the right places, they can tear up roads. They can tear up foundations of buildings. They can transform the environment that they're in. And here's what this means. It means if we can get Christian politicians in positions of power in every country of the world, and they can pass legislation so that the legal systems of the world reflect biblical morality, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus' kingdom is winning because laws can't change hearts. I mean, it's pretty easy to like cut down the level of theft in society. You just say like, if you're caught stealing, we're going to chop off your hand and then enforce that strictly right? Like people are going to stop stealing stuff if you do that on a consistent basis. But that's not going to change hearts. It's not going to make people generous. It's not going to make them want to help other people. It's just going to make them look for new creative ways to take things without getting caught. But what does change hearts? Seeing and understanding the love of Jesus for us. When we see that Jesus has been radically generous to us, that he gave his life to rescue us, to make us rich, with all the wealth of heaven, then we're free to be generous to others. And it doesn't happen because someone's holding us and, and sticking a gun to our head and saying, you have to give stuff away. No, we, we want to be generous because the gospel has taken root in our hearts and it's transformed us from the inside out. We don't experience transformation by having others force us into obedience. We experience transformation by grasping this new perspective on reality and hope. And so what does this new perspective on hope mean for our lives? It means that our primary calling as Christians is not to convert Christianity into living a way that reflects Christian values. It's to be faithful to Jesus in the small, seemingly insignificant moments of day-to-day life. That's what God wants you and me to do, to be faithful to him in the small, 
seemingly insignificant moments of day-to-day life. That doesn't mean we should stop caring about society. It doesn't mean we should stop engaging with society. It doesn't mean it's wrong to want the laws to, to actually call for people to do things that are good. But it does mean God cares way more about whether we're loving our neighbors on a day-to-day basis. He cares way more about whether we're living with joy on a day-to-day basis. He cares way more about whether we're experiencing peace in our hearts instead of stress and anxiety on a day-to-day basis than he does about whether we're winning the culture wars. Your politician losing the election does not mean that God's kingdom has failed. The government passing laws that you see as an abomination does not mean that God's kingdom has failed. God's kingdom keeps advancing no matter the opposition, no matter the obstacles, no matter who's in office, no matter how they respond to Jesus, because on the grand scheme of the universe, Jesus is the one on the throne. Prison can't stop his kingdom from advancing. Caesar's verdict on Paul doesn't influence whether Jesus' kingdom is going to keep moving forward. God's kingdom cannot be stopped by any earthly power, which means if we're followers of Jesus, we can live with hope each day, regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of what's happening in politics, regardless of what's happening in culture. We can have hope because Jesus is on the throne. But how do we get these perspectives? Let's talk about that, how to get these perspectives. Because I think these new perspectives on, on success and on hope, they, they sound great in theory, but they might sound also a bit idealistic. Like with success, the idea of being free of seeking affirmation in numbers, it sounds great. The idea of just being able to find success as being faithful to what God calls me to do, that sounds great. But when I try this in practice, a little part of me freaks out. Anyone else felt that before? Like this little part of you just screaming from the inside because deep down in my heart, I want affirmation from numbers and worldly success. And to let that source of affirmation die means a little part of me feels like it's dying too. Or with hope, like it's comforting to know that God's kingdom advances no matter what opposition is facing. But isn't it so much easier to believe that that's true when your side actually is winning in the culture wars? Like, isn't it so much harder to believe the truth that God's kingdom is advancing when you're in Paul's position, just staring at a prison wall for your support of Jesus? Isn't it easier to believe that God's kingdom is advancing when you're put in positions of prestige and respect for being on his side, when the right politicians are in place and the right laws are being passed and the right values are being promoted by culture? And I mean, if you're in Paul's place, just sitting in prison because you believe in Jesus, and you're trying to work for his kingdom, I think it feels like a little part of you is dying most of the time. And naturally, we we hate and resist things that feel like we're dying. Again, I realize probably no one in this room has ever been locked in a literal physical prison for our belief in Jesus. But what about when we feel neglected and slighted by our friends because we believe in Jesus? What about when society talks about Christians like we're dinosaurs who, who are outdated and have no place to belong in today's world? because of our faith in Jesus. As great as these new perspectives are in theory, it's difficult to reach a place where we actually feel like living this way is good news on a day-to-day basis. So how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we see these realities as life-giving realities in our day-to-day lives? Where we're not just doing them because we're supposed to and, and guilt drags us out of bed each morning, but where we live with this perspective of success and hope because we've been reshaped by Jesus. And I think that transformation has two key ingredients. The first is Jesus' perspective on success and hope. I want you to look 
up here on the screen, we have Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, from one perspective, the cross is the ultimate failure in the history of the universe. God himself, who's come to earth, taken on human flesh, he's condemned to die a miserable death. Miserable death. Couldn't God have done better than that? From one perspective, the cross is the ultimate death of hope because God himself is dead. If God is dead, what hope does humanity have that things are ever gonna get any better for us? And yet from another perspective, the cross is the greatest success and the greatest source of hope possible in the world. When you look at this verse, what led Jesus to go to the cross? Was it despair? Was it guilt and shame? A failure or hopelessness? No, it says it was joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. How could Jesus have joy in the midst of something that looks like such a failure and that looks so hopeless? It's because he saw the bigger perspective. He saw that, that life, when we're following him, is J-shaped. Like the letter J, it goes down into death, but it always follows with resurrection. Life in God's stories, it involves death, but the death is never the end of the story. Resurrection always is. So Jesus was able to endure the death and the shame of the cross and that seeming failure. He, he went through it with joy because he knew none of the things happening to me right now are the end of the story. And of course, God raised him back to life on the third day, proving that Jesus has once and for all been victorious over sin and death, which means that if we're followers of Jesus, the pattern for our life is the same as the pattern for Jesus' life. Just like he died and then rose again, we experience these little deaths every day where we give up our grasping for success, where we give up defining our hope the way the world defines it. And if that's all we see, then it's gonna be crushing to us. But when we see that God's working to bring resurrection out of it, when we know that as a functional reality in our hearts, that, that helps us to live with this new perspective on success and this new perspective on hope because these seeming failures can't stop God's kingdom from advancing. And God himself is on the throne, making sure that his kingdom advances in exactly the way that he knows is best. So we need Jesus' perspective on success and hope. But the second thing we need is a proper perspective on God's sovereignty. They're connected, but, but separate. God's sovereignty means that God is in complete control of everything that's happening in our lives and our world. We see this in Hebrews chapter one, verse three. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything that happens in the universe happens because God in his infinite wisdom and power allows it to happen. I mean, that's good news because if God's kingdom advancing depends on our skill, our hard work, our understanding of the universe, it's in a lot of trouble because none of us has enough skill or enough power or enough understanding of the universe to do things right. But God, he's sovereign. So he's working everything out the way that it's supposed to. And not only that, but he's working it out for our good because he's loving. So, so it's not just for good in general, but it's for good for your life and my life. Romans 8, 28, it says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. God's not just some cruel tyrant who has all the power and he's gonna do what he wants and you better be okay with that. No, he's a loving father who's working every detail out for good for those who love him. Third, God is all wise. He's not always gonna do what we want because he knows what's best. 
I mean, without wisdom, God's like no better than a cosmic Mr. Bean who like tries to do everything, but constantly makes mistakes and makes things worse. But his wisdom means that as he rules over everything and as he's working for good, he actually knows what to do so that he's working it out in the best way possible. God has a plan for how his kingdom will advance. And it's not always going to be our plan, but it's always going to be better. And then finally, we need to understand that God is patient. So he's going to take time to do all this, which means when things feel like they're going from bad to worse, we can keep trusting means we can have a longer term perspective on success because God isn't judging success by minutes or hours or days or week. He's judging success from the perspective of eternity. And you might be thinking, well, if God's sovereign, does that just mean we should be apathetic and God's going to do it all anyway? No. One of the big messages of the book of Acts is that God accomplishes his plans through his people. Yes, God's kingdom, it's advancing with all boldness and without hindrance, but how is it doing that? Because Paul is faithfully telling people from his prison cell about Jesus. Here's what this new perspective does mean. It means that when we try our best, when we seek to be obedient, and rather than getting better, things just keep getting worse. We can keep loving. We can keep having joy. We can keep having peace because we know how the story ends. And when we live with these new perspectives on success and hope, we actually start to live our lives in God's story. I mentioned at the start, the book of Acts kind of ends on a cliffhanger. It does that because the story isn't over. The gospel is spreading and advancing in the world. It's made it to Rome, but has it gotten to your neighbors? It's about to be shared with Caesar, but has your family heard it? Paul's sharing it with everyone in the prison, but have your colleagues at work heard about it? God has brought you to this place and time because he's inviting you to continue this story of Acts in your life today, sharing about his kingdom with the people you interact with. He's inviting you to bring these new perspectives on success and the new perspective on hope into your world this week so that people around you can see there's something different in the way that followers of Jesus live and they want it and they can join in being part of his kingdom as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom, that it is advancing and moving and going forward through all the world, that, that no opposition can stop it, that no human powers have the ability to prevent it from moving forward. Thank you for those who have come before us who have been faithful in spreading your kingdom so that we can hear about it and, and that we can be here today to, to trust in you and follow you. And I pray that you would make us faithful followers of you as well. Teach us to trust you and love you more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.